If you live to be 80 years old, that's 29,200 days. I don't know if that sounds like a lot or not a lot to you. I couldn't really decide. Of course, more than 9,500 of those days are going to be spent sleeping. Between red lights, the doctor's office, check out at the store, getting that YouTube video to load, upwards of 1,800 of your days are going to just be spent waiting. If you're 20, 7,300 of your days are already gone. If you're 40, you're way up past 14,000. That list is getting long and the days are getting short, aren't they? The internet provides many lists of how to make every day count. The suggestions, of course, are mostly self-centered. Make time for yourself, get plenty of sleep, exercise, learn something new. Uh, One said, what you really need to do is make a vision board. I think I laughed out loud when I read that one. If you make a vision board at home, that's fine. I'm just not sure if that's the key to making every day count. Of all the articles I scanned, two were sensible and honest enough to acknowledge that our lives are going to end one day. One put it very bluntly, every second you're alive, you're a second closer to death. So their advice is, do what makes you happy. Oh, I didn't realize it was that easy. (laughs) I found it ironic that on that very same website, the most recent article that they posted was titled, Seven Tips for How to Negotiate Credit Card Debt. Uh, So it seems as if doing what makes you happy leads to some unintended consequences, right? Psalm 90 has a blunt message for us this morning. It's that life is short and will soon be over. Perhaps you find yourself thinking, hey, I woke up this morning already weighed down by cares and pains and sorrows. I came here to feel better, not worse. What gives Psalm 90? Uh, It's important that we consider our expiration date and the reality of our condition, the reality of this mortal world we're in. It's a great advantage that our God is not afraid to tell us hard truths. Would you want a doctor who who withheld a terminal diagnosis from you, especially if he had the cure in hand? Would you want a doctor who said, well, this patient of mine is going to die. I know it. I have the cure for it, but I don't want to make them feel bad about themselves. Of course we wouldn't. The inevitable end of our mortal lives is not the whole message of Psalm 90. Yes, you're going to die. So am I. In fact, each one of us is dying right now. But every one of us can have a life full of joy and purpose and everlasting impact, a life that counts. Considering these things reveals to us uh, not only what life is really about, the meaning of life, but it also reveals to us just how uh, immense and climactic God's love for each of us really is. Most of those how to make everyday count lists Pretend that you could just sidestep or ignore the obstacles and problem parts of life. One of them had this on their list. It said, stop spending time with people who don't make you happy. Again, I didn't realize it was that easy. Now, luckily, the author of our psalm didn't follow that advice. If there was ever anyone who stuck with people who didn't make him happy, it was Moses. Now, we read above verse 1 in what's called the superscript that that Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Moses, for all of his uh, experience and uh, all of his qualities, was also a songwriter. We know that he wrote at least three songs that are in the Bible. This is the only one found in the Psalms. But that makes this the oldest psalm in the book as far as we know. 
It may be one of the oldest songs ever written uh, in human society, certainly among the people of God. The title here calls him the man of God. He certainly was. Exodus 33 explains that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friend. But that doesn't mean that Moses was perfect. Far from it. Most of you are familiar with his story. He doesn't rank as, uh, you know, the, the most perfect Bible character. Far from it. He was a man of God because he had faith and because he walked with the Lord, because he listened to God and shared his heart with him. And so he, he followed the Lord imperfectly, but that's what made him a man of God. And, and that's a heartening thing. Verse one begins, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Now, we don't know the specific circumstances under which this psalm was written, but Moses was clearly facing a time of hard realities. As we begin this trip through some difficult verses, Moses wants to ground us in this truth, remind us of this fact that God is a refuge. He is a place of shelter and protection and provision. The term used here is a term for an animal's den the place that a frightened animal can run to to be safe from a predator. And we know that God does not limit access to his refuge to just people he likes or just a person or two. The door is flung wide to anyone who will flee to him for safety. And the Psalms are full of this idea of God being refuge, that anyone can take refuge in the Lord any place, any time, from any background. He will not turn you out. In Moses' day, the Lord was literally their refuge, their shelter. As the children of Israel traveled through the wilderness, the Lord's glory went with them day by day as a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire by night, providing light and protection and shade and direction and all of these different things, a visible manifestation of his glorious refuge there with them. And of course, that doesn't mean that God's people had no problems. They had a lot of problems as they wandered through the wilderness. The Israelites faced the attacking Egyptians, attacking Amalekites. They endured hard passage through desert terrain, sometimes short on water. They dealt with temptations, interpersonal conflicts. They had a lot of things going on, but always the Lord was their refuge. And so whatever state you're in this morning, whatever circumstances you're um, taking a break from in, in our service this morning, whatever generation you belong to, God is a refuge. And he invites you to make your home in him and open up your heart so that he can dwell in you. This is one of the beautiful images that the Bible gives us in both the Old and New Testament, that we are to hide ourselves in God, to, that we are to be found in Christ, to make our home in him, and that the Lord God wants to dwell in our hearts as well. He in us and us in him. Verse two says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. And so Moses is contrasting here the vast greatness of God with our own finite weakness. We can barely keep our potted plants alive, or at least I can barely keep anything alive at my house. Meanwhile, God fashioned the entire universe. I love all these news stories about how they are still discovering new species, still discovering you know, new solar systems, new stars. A few years ago, they discovered a new organ, a new human organ attached to the stomach. And they said, oh, I guess that's an organ. You're like, what? <laughs> 
Haven't we, haven't we like opened up a lot of people's bodies? Haven't, don't we have MRIs and all this thing? Yeah, there's a new organ in there. And so we're discovering all these things. The Lord fashioned it all with the breath of his word. He hung the stars in their place. He holds the atoms together. You know, only 4,000 people have ever climbed Mount Everest as far as we know. Meanwhile, with a word, the, the word, the Lord formed it, brought it forth. Mount Everest. And Olympus Mons, it's a mountain on Mars that makes Mount Everest look like a little foothill. It's three times the size of Mount Everest. And the Lord just said, yeah, come on, come on out. And there it was formed by the breath of his word. Why did God give birth to the world? He did so so that there would be a place for you to live. You sitting here this morning. God said, I want to create a universe and a cosmos. And one of the primary reasons was that so you could have a place to live so that he could demonstrate his love to you and so that he could fellowship with you. From before the foundation of the earth, we've been called to fellowship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says. That's the reason creation exists. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul explains that before time began, God called you by name. He made detailed plans for your life. He decided to adopt you into his forever family as a son or a daughter if you're willing to put your faith in him. Verse three continues, you return mankind to the dust saying return descendants of Adam. So wait, what's going on here? God had this plan. He constructed a universe so that he could commune forever with human beings. He created man and woman immortal. Well, what happened? Moses gives us the answer in that name, Adam. Adam happened. Death and sorrow and suffering were not part of the plan. But of course, Adam and Eve, knowing their options as incredibly super intelligent beings, they decided to go their own way. They were presented with a choice. Do you want to go God's way and trust him to direct and boundary your lives? Or do you want to be God's for your own lives and go your own way? And of course, they chose to reject what God had said. They did the one thing he asked them not to do, but it wasn't just about eating a piece of fruit. It was about rejecting God's rule over their lives. They were told that if they did so, they would bring death into the cosmos and they discovered immediately that God was not lying. He wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't bluffing. Did your parents ever tell you if you did something that, you know, you know, if you smoke that cigarette, your head will explode, right? <laughs> parents sometimes exaggerate a little bit or, or uh, you know, maybe spin things a little bit in order to try to get their kids to behave in a certain way. I'm not saying that's right or not, but we, we understand that, right? Well, God wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't bluffing. He wasn't lying. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and death flooded into the cosmos. That's why we are so fragile. That's why every one of us is dying here today. I, I do want to drive home that po point. You are dying here this morning and so am I. Some of us really feel it and some of us don't. But that's why we need a refuge. Because there's a predator out there coming to dust us and we are helpless against it. We used to watch a lot of nature shows growing up um, and uh, you, know, you can't have a nature show without showing an animal eating another animal, right? It's like a law that the FCC, it's a regulation. They say you have to have at least one cute animal eaten by another big animal. 
And you, you, know, you see they have these incredible cameras that are capturing everything in this high frame rate so that they can do it all in slow motion, the chase of the, you know, the wolf chasing the rabbit, of the lion chasing the gazelle, and all of the motions and all of the movements. But you know that they're going to get eaten. You know that they're going to zig when they should have zagged, and that predator is going to sink in, and then that's it for little Bambi. And so there is a predator. It's called death, and it's hunting down human beings, bringing them back to the dust. Verse 4, Moses says of God, for in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by like a few hours of the night. You know, we're fond in, the, in Christianity and in the church of saying that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And it's because Peter's quoting this verse. Uh, but Moses actually goes further with this image here. I think it's interesting. He says, yeah, with God, a thousand years is like a day. He's like, actually, with God, a thousand years is like a few hours of the night, four hours of the night. The Israelites, they divided the period between sunset and sunrise into uh, three four-hour blocks, watches of the night. And so he says, yeah, you know, a thousand years to the Lord is like one watch of the night, a couple hours. Isaiah gives us another comparison between the immensity of God, the transcendence of God, and the limitations and smallness of humanity. He says in chapter 40, we'll get there in a couple weeks in our Sunday morning studies, but he says, all the nations of the earth, okay, let's think about that for a minute and put on your, you know, your school world history cap, all the nations of the earth, all of the empires, all of the societies that uh, throughout human history, he says, they are like one drop in a bucket. He says, they're like a speck of dust on the scale. We're into coffee here. We like to do pour overs. And uh, maybe you've seen someone make a pour over and they get their beans and they weigh them on a scale. One coffee bean uh, doesn't weigh a gram. It weighs like, you know, a tenth of a gram, maybe. So you're pouring hundreds of beans in to just make one cup of coffee. And Isaiah says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of the nations of, of human history are like a speck of dust on the scale. It's never going to register, not in the scale of eternity. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't keep track of time. He does. In fact, in eternity, we know at least months will be counted. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the nations. He absolutely does. He's the one that raises up and brings down nations. He's personally, meticulously involved in the history of the, of the world and in, in national history. More importantly, he cares about you very personally, very specifically. He cares about you so much that he was willing to send his own one and only son to die in your place. He cares so much about you that he continually spends his time, as it were, intervening in human history on our behalf. Do you realize that God can do whatever he wants to do? Some of you, you know, remember what it was like to have, you know, have to do work your nine to five. Some of you are still working that nine to five and you're counting the days to retirement so that you can do what you want to do. Most people, if they grind it out for 40, 50 years in a job that they don't enjoy or a job that is incredibly difficult, don't retire and then say, now let me show back up and I'm going to work around the clock for free at my job. The Lord could do whatever he wants to do. And what does he want to do? He wants to interact with you. He wants to intervene in human history. He wants to draw human beings to himself and commune with us so that he can pour out his love and grace into our lives. He cares that much. 
And so Moses' point here in verse four is that God is beyond comparison. There's none so great, none so powerful as the God of the Bible. We need to understand who he is and who we are if we could compare the two, even though, of course, we cannot. Verse five says, you end their lives, they sleep. They're like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning, it sprouts and grows. By evening, it withers and dries up. So God is in charge of the beginning and end of a life. The Bible explains that he fashioned us in our mother's womb like a treasure, that he gives life to all things. Psalm 31 says, our times are in your hands. But that doesn't mean that if someone is murdered, for example, that God is the one who caused that murder. Now, there are branches of Christianity that say, oh, yes, he did. He causes everything to happen. Uh, the obvious and unfortunate reality of that kind of perspective is that it makes God a monster. It makes God the author of evil, and we're unwilling to accept that because then he wouldn't be God. You see, the Bible reveals that God's providential dealing with men has some flex, has some wiggle room. Now, that's really hard for us to understand. We can't understand it, but we do see what the Bible presents. Sometimes lives are cut short of what the Lord intended. Sometimes lives are extended past what the Lord intended. How does that work? I don't know, but the Bible reveals it. Let me give you a couple examples. The Israelites in the wilderness, they're a great example. There they are. The Lord brought them to the edge of the promised land. He said, go on into the promised land. It's all for you, milk and honey. It's going to be great. And they said, nah, we would rather not. And the Lord said, okay, my offer for you to go into the promised land was genuine. You don't want to, so we're going to pivot. We're going to flex here. And now everyone who's 20 years old and older is going to die within the next 40 years. All those people wouldn't have died in that time frame had they gone into the promised land. In the church at Corinth, Paul said, you know what? You guys are, are believers, Right? He didn't say they were unbelievers. You look at the beginning, and who's he talking to? He's talking to believers, and he says, but listen, a bunch of you are in, 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 trapped in sin. You're, you're doing a bunch of really problematic things. And he says, and it's, it's gotten so bad that, that God is sending fatal illnesses to some of you, bringing you home early, as it were. If they hadn't been engaged in that, that, that sin that Paul was talking about, then they wouldn't have been... Uh, disciplined with a fatal illness. King Hezekiah in the Old Testament, God sends the prophet to him and he says, go tell Hezekiah he's going to die. So he goes, he says, hey, you're going to die. Hezekiah throws a hissy fit about it. And so the Lord says, all right, I'm willing to give you 15 extra years. It was a huge mistake, by the way, because in those 15 years is when Hezekiah gave birth to Manasseh, who became king of Israel and was maybe the worst king of Judah, sorry, the king of, maybe the worst king of Judah that they ever had. But there's flex in that providential dealings with the beginning and end of people's life. But here's the point. If you're alive this morning, and from what I can tell, most of us are alive here this morning... If you're alive here this morning, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not an oversight. God has some plan, some intention, some direction for you, some grace he wants to pour out into your life because you are his masterpiece meant to display his glory, not only to this world, but to the unseen cosmos filled with supernatural beings, according to Ephesians 3, verse 10. Now, meanwhile, Moses says we're like grass, Grass is a weak and fragile thing. It's helpless against a hot sun, a heavy boot, or a hungry cow. 
from heaven's perspective, the greatest, strongest man in human history is just a blade of grass. This image isn't just about our weakness, though. It uncovers the incredible kindness and generosity and care of God who does so much for creatures who are, in one sense, so insignificant, creatures who are so vulnerable. We all know the stereotype, right, of the neighbor who's so obsessed with his lawn that he cuts it by hand with scissors, right? We, uh, we've seen the movies or the television shows or those sorts of things. Now consider that you are a blade of grass from one perspective, and yet the Lord loves you individually. He planted you specifically right where you're at. He tends to your life individually, pours out all he has on your behalf, sparing not even his own son, but giving it up for you, a blade of grass, a wisp of vapor. And so it's not just about our weakness, it's about the greatness of God's affection for us. Verse seven, we are consumed by your anger. We're terrified by your wrath. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So this is the why of our weakness. We've already had it alluded to uh, in, when he invoked Adam, but this is the why. It's sin that has ruined things and continues to do so. It brings the wrath of God. It brings judgment. It has to. Now, Moses, as an author, he knew firsthand about hidden sins coming to light, didn't he? His secret murder. He thought he was doing it for the right reasons, but he murdered a man. And it was exposed, brought to the light. His secret family failures, too. He had refused to circumcise his own son for some reason. And he said, yeah, I can, you know, be the deliverer of Israel and I can do all this stuff with God, but you know, I don't really have to in my personal life over here really do all the things God has instructed us to do. He didn't circumcise his own son. And in an amazing scene, he's headed to Egypt and it says the Lord sought to kill him. Wow. Talk about a life maybe being cut short. It would have been 80 years shorter except for Zipporah. Moses' wife took things into her own hand and said, I will do what you are unwilling to do. So Moses knew about sins being exposed and the judgment that is brought as a result of sin. The question is, if God is so powerful and if he loves us so much and if his plan is to rescue us anyway, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. Why not just let it slide? What's the big deal? Yeah, it's sin, but God wants to undo it anyway, right? Well, the same reason why you don't let it slide if there was a big stain on the front of your shirt this morning. Just before we came out, I was drinking my coffee and did a thing we all do, and like I felt a, a blub, and I thought, oh no, and I thought I was going to get a stain on my shirt, and it wasn't going to be time for me to change it, and so instead I caught it on my, my chin and just hoped that the burn on my chin wouldn't be as bad as a stain on my shirt, and I was like, phew, at least my, <laughs> my shirt didn't get stained. We look at that, and we say, well, we, I have to take care of that, right? It's the same reason why you, you know, you're on YouTube or you watch the news and you see this lawlessness playing out across our nation all the time, all, you know, these cell phone cameras that we see, and we feel anger about it. We say, that's not right. Why doesn't someone do something about that? It's the same reason why if you had absolute power, you would make some kind of change to this world, wouldn't you? George Costanza once said that if he were running for office, he would seek the death penalty for double parkers. And we all understand that, right? I would seek the death penalty for tailgaters. <laughs> hey, man, three strikes and you're out, is what I would say. Uh, that's a joke, obviously, but we all have that, that feeling that we would make changes based off things that aren't right. 
if we had the choice. My first apartment had a little grass just outside the front door. And periodically, one of my neighbors, I don't know who, one of my anonymous neighbors would come and dump like gallons of their used up frying oil <laughs> right there on the grass in front of my front door. And so, and it was just, just disgusting. He must have used it over and over and over again. And if you've ever been around old cooking oil, it's just nasty. And so I would come home every day to this stinking, putrid, black puddle of bog in front of, in front of my door. And it was gross. It killed the grass. It was stank. You know, I would have liked that to not happen. If I had my way, I would have dealt with the, the rot and the ruin of that oil and with the person who kept doing it. Now, it's not that God is simply annoyed by things and wants to get rid of them. That's not, that's not the deal. I'm use those examples as an illustration of that. We all innately understand that there are some things that are right and some things that are not right and should be dealt with. God is absolutely holy He's, and, and he is absolutely pure and perfect. Sin is absolutely rancid. It is the worst stain, the worst rot, the worst lawlessness, the worst rebellion against a righteous God. And so God cannot overlook sin or pretend it isn't what it is or sweep it under a rug somewhere. If he did, he would not be just, he would not be pure, he would not be good, he would not be holy, he would not be God. That's just the deal. The truth is, if we think about things, we want God to overlook some sin, but not others, right? We want him to kind of let our guilt slide or the guilt of those we love, but those other people that we see, that politician or that world leader or that criminal will know, hang them high, but let my guilt slide. But the truth is all sin is sin, whether it's mine or the worst person across an ocean, and God hates it. One reason he hates it is because sin separates us from him. And what he wants most of all is fellowship with human beings. His great desire is to commune with you day by day forever and ever, for our hearts to be joined with his. But what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, and immediately they were separated from that fellowship and communion. They hid from God. They ran from him. And so now for thousands of years of human history, Emmanuel, God with us, has been working to repair that breach so that he can once again be God with us. Verse 9 continues, For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years or for strong 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Life expectancy in California, 79 years. For those of you seeking an escape to Tennessee, beware. You may have to trade in a few years off the top. Life expectancy there is a paltry 73. So I'm just going to throw that out there for you. Moses is speaking generally here, of course. He himself lived to be 120. So, all right, let's, let's adjust what he said here in verses 9 and 10. Call it 100 years. Make it 1,000 years. Compared to eternity, it's a few passing moments. Meanwhile, human life is hard even when it's easy. Moses had a really wide life experience. He knew life in the palace, life as a powerful leader. He knew the quiet life of pasturing flocks on the backside of a mountain. We'll find days of struggle no matter where we live, when we live, how we live. No one escapes the difficulties of life when it comes to worry, regret, mistakes, sorrow, pain, disappointment. And all of those things point to the reality that we are in trouble and we need a rescue. Verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. So we deserve wrath, absolutely. But then suddenly Moses just pivots. 
Out of nowhere. He's talking about the wrath we deserve and the anger of God against sin. And then suddenly, in verse 12, he pivots and is talking about the fact that there's a way out. God has a remedy. He's always ready to rescue. He gave Adam and Eve a substitute. He brought his people out of Egypt. He saw them through the wilderness. He defeated the giants that came against them. He brought down the nations that surrounded them. He's always a refuge for his people in every generation, no matter how guilty we are. No matter how much sin has ruined our lives, the Lord says, you can find refuge and help in me in your time of trouble. If you want to escape wrath, the way is simple. This is what John 3 says. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Believe and you will be saved. That's the message of the Bible. Moses asked the Lord here to teach us to number our days that we may develop wisdom. This is the famous verse from this psalm. It's not just about getting smarter, getting letters after our name. Wisdom in the Bible means seeing things as God sees them. It means applying his truth to our lives. And in context, it would also mean that we recognize that not only are our days numbered, but that God has numbered our days. And we should number them too the way that he numbers them. To make them count, not for what I think will make me feel happy, but to make them count toward those intentions that God has designed for my life from before the world was even created. To get on his schedule, to get on his uh, accounting table, to, to measure and number our days the way that he does. How can we number our days? Well, in part, it's important for us to take this theme of, of, of Psalm 90 to heart, that life is short and eternity is coming. You know, short timers make different decisions, don't they? They make decisions very specifically, short timers, you know, at work or short timers in the military, those sorts of things. So how can we number our days? Well, that's something Moses said that the Lord has to teach you. This isn't the part of the sermon where we say, and so everyone has to just work around the clock for Jesus because how dare you go and go to the beach when you could be evangelizing door to door? Aren't you, you know, measuring, counting your days? Moses says, well, Lord, I need you to teach me to, to number my days because the truth of the matter is God doesn't just intend labor for your life. He also intends rest for your life. He intends to pour into you and for you to pour out to others. He intends uh, to use you and to build you up and to knit you with others. He intends all kinds of different things for your life. And I don't know what he intends for your day today, but he does. And so, Lord, teach me. Teach me to number this day, this Sunday morning, according to what you have numbered it. Show me by your spirit. Show me by your word. Show me what you desire. This is the day that God has made. And according to the Bible, according to Ephesians, I have a place in this day that he has made and he wants me to discover my place and to walk in it. So Lord, teach me to number today. God plans to develop wisdom in our lives, Moses says here. It's not an instant acquisition. It's a process of growth as we walk with him. There's another layer that we can apply in light of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, we read that Jesus Christ became wisdom from God for us. That's an important phrase. So developing wisdom doesn't just mean understanding what God wants for and from me today. It also means in a greater level that we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and be more conformed to his image, that, that wisdom is developed in our hearts and Jesus Christ became wisdom from God for us so that God's 
plan for us, uh, you know, flourishes where we become more like Jesus and he is able to fill up our hearts and lives with the heart of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus. That's an important thing to remember too. God's wisdom in Christ is the most valuable thing we could devote our lives to. It's more valuable than gold or rubies or even cryptocurrency, believe it or not. Verse 13, Lord, how long? Turn and have compassion on your servants. I find it interesting that Moses says how long here. After all, he just said a thousand years is like a few hours to God. But from our perspective, it is long when we're struggling and when we're suffering. And Moses shows us here that it is okay to pray this way. We don't have to pretend that we aren't downhearted when we are struggling or suffering. God doesn't say, I don't want to hear it. You'll be, you'll be in heaven in a couple moments, right? <laughs> the, the Psalms is full of this. Hey, pour out your heart to God about what's really going on and the things you're really thinking. If you, if you feel like you are breaking under the weight of your suffering, call out to the Lord. Cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. God is mindful of your suffering. And he is a God of active mercy, a God of tender compassion who can be counted on, not to ignore us, not to dismiss us, but to embrace us with his grace. Your version may have Moses asking God to return to us, but the Lord hasn't left. He will never leave us or forsake us. In fact, Moses is comparing again. He uses the same term he used back in verse three, as we are turning back to dust, we see God turning in grace and compassion and active care toward us. Where sin ruins, the Lord redeems, right? Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us for as many years as we have seen adversity. So Moses calls on God's faithful love, his hesed. This is an active, loyal love where a stronger party takes it upon himself to help a weaker party because he loves them and cares for them. Not out of obligation, but out of love. Moses asked the Lord to fill up the lives of his people, filled with all the fullness of God, where our lives overflow with an abundance of joy and contentment and worship and purpose and strength. This is what God wants. It's not just what we want for ourselves. This is what God wants for you. What did Jesus said? He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, with abundance. In the end, God is not going to give us a one-for-one trade for our days of adversity like Moses asks for. He's going to give his people like a trillion-to-one trade for it. Though our present sufferings are real and painful by looking at eternity, we can remind ourselves that our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen for what is seen is temporary, but what is seen unseen is eternal. And we find here that we can rejoice along the way. Verse 16, let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by their children. And so Moses doesn't just ask for eternal relief and just say, well, this is all really awful and life is short and hard, but at least we'll be dead and in heaven someday. He, he asks not only for eternal relief, but for intervention right here, right now. And his prayer was that God would work in such a way that a magnificent testimony would shine through our lives as a proof of God's powerful splendor. As we walk with God, even in adversity, 
He works in and through our lives so that our families and friends and neighbors and the world around us can see our joy and see how we're invigorated to praise the Lord so that they might also come to the conclusion that God is real and he is good and he is with his people and he's a refuge for anyone who seeks him. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish for us the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. What an ending compared to how the song started off. God can make something out of our nothing. Your version may say, let the beauty of the Lord be on us. The term can also mean goodness or kindness, all of these wonderful things. When Moses refers to the work of our hands, he doesn't just mean the job we do, of course. He's talking about our response to what the Lord has done on our behalf. The term can also mean workmanship. And it reminds us again that we are God's workmanship, his masterpiece. And we are able to participate with him in that everlasting cosmic work. And so the prayer is not, Lord, give me an extra 100,000 days on this earth. It's, Lord, man, who am I that you are mindful of me? But Lord, involve yourself in the days I have left. Show me how to be in step with what you have planned for my life. Gene Simmons is quoted as saying, life is too short to have anything but delusional notions about yourself. Really great way to waste a life. A really great way to get as far off track as a person can get. Before time began, the Lord determined to create you, to portion out your days. David said, if we could know the, and count the, the number of thoughts that God has for us, it would outnumber the grains of sand on the beach. There's no need for you to have delusional notions about yourself. The Lord wants you to have supernatural notions about your life. He certainly does. He certainly has an everlasting plan for you. Psalm 90 reminds us that the clock is ticking. But these expiring days of our lives can overflow with joy and have everlasting value when we realize that the Lord has made this day. The Lord made today. And he made a place for you in it specifically. He's counted this day, not just generally, but specifically for you. He has called you from eternity past to walk with him in this day as a partner in his good work. Today, he counts your life. And today counts as we make our home in him, as we flee to him, are filled by him, and find our rest in him. Let's pray.